Joe here from the news team at Jack. And in the last week, there's been some more big local news relating to coronavirus, including some new 90-minute tests that are going to be rolled out in care homes and labs. And one of them is being supplied by Oxford Nanopore, which is based at the Oxford Science Park. People in the county have been receiving texts from their GP surgeries because there has been a bit of a rise in the number of people testing positive in Oxford, particularly in the east of the city. Also, an obesity expert from Oxford Uni has taken part in a new report on free school meals. But first, COVID-19 antibody testing is heading to a site in South Oxfordshire. Didcot Town Football Club is going to host it next week. It's open to everyone, not just key workers. Dr Natalie Kenny is the director at Biograd and explained to our reporter Alex how they started off screening school students. The issue that we had in one of our local regions was that the school didn't want to do the antibody testing in the schools. They wanted to get all the schools into one place. So the local football team offered up their stadium for us to do screening for the local schools. But it got out in the community and the whole thing just booked up. So we meant to have one or two little test bays. And we ended up with five test bays for the day. And we opened it up to the community and just charged them £36. And then the word sort of got out. So in the last few weeks, we've run screening, antibody screening um, camps throughout the UK. Um, and people are travelling in from all over just to be able to get tested. And what's particularly interesting is that the levels that we are detecting in the general community are somewhat different to what is being released by the government. And now that might just be because the government are only testing key workers or only testing people that are likely to have had COVID. But actually, amongst the general population, we're seeing um, patients with COVID antibodies, which really will last for six to eight weeks, um, and about 14.4%. So that's suggesting the populations that we're going into, 14.4% of people have been exposed to COVID in the last six to eight weeks. And what's even more interesting is that we are identifying about 0.8% of patients with IgM, which would suggest that they they have COVID infections at the moment. So we've been able to isolate a few patients that have non-symptomatic COVID in the community um, without actually having to do all the PCR swabs. Interesting stuff. So talk me through it. I rock up at Didcot Town. What happens next? So when you arrive, um, there'll be a big Biograd um, reception tent. You'll go in, you'll be met. You will have booked beforehand, so we'll have all of your information. You'll be talked through the process quickly. We'll sign you in. And then it's a one-way system. So we'll have probably around four um, tents set up. Each one of them is completely um, fastened. There's no windows or anything. So nobody can see you having your test done. You walk in. You sit down. The nurse in the tent will um, sterilize the end of your finger. It's a really quick finger prick test. So it's a little short, sharp scratch. And um, they will they will take a little blood sample from the little drop of blood that comes out of your finger. They will put it onto their test unit and you will get an email 20 minutes later. So you're only actually in the tent for around two minutes. So you walk in, sign in, have the test done and then leave. And 20 minutes later, you get an email with your results. How advanced is our knowledge of these antibodies? Obviously, we are in a position where we can we can identify them. If you could just talk a little bit about the science and, and yeah. these antibodies well, and, and what we know about them at this stage. Well, the lateral flow antibody tests are not new. They've been around for a long, long time. Actually, making an ELISA test in the lab or a lateral flow test for an antibody is really very easy once you know what the antibody or the antigen is that you want to test. So I know there's some 
information in the news that, where people are questioning the sensitivity and the specificity. But it's extremely high. It's, this is not a new technology. Um, you know, the sensitivity in our tests are like 98.9% accuracy for being able to detect um, an antibody if it's present. How important are centres like this and tests like this, antibody tests, in getting us back to as close to normal as we can be? Well, it's critical, and this is the main issue. You compare the UK with other countries that have instigated national testing, and the distance is profound. Having tests that are available for general community, not just key workers, but for the general community to be able to go and test their COVID status, not only allows people to get back to work, but it starts to reduce the anxiety associated with COVID. So um, we were playing with the tests, and um, I tested myself and my family. And my son and I both had IgG antibodies for COVID. Well, we had no symptoms whatsoever. And I've got to tell you, having a six-year-old child who's not been at school for six months and was really anxious about coronavirus and catching it. And, you know, we try and not listen to the news when, when my son's around because it's, it is, it's, it's, it's worrying for such young children that have been pulled out of their regular routine. For him, once, now that he knows he's had it, he's got through it, he's not scared anymore. And he's gone back to normal life without this fear, which really is wonderful as a parent to be able to, to offer that to your child. The questions that we get most of the time are, what is the point of doing COVID antibody testing? Because it just tells me if I've had it in the past, which is true. It's, I think it's important for us as a country to know how many people have had it in the past and actually get some really good, reliable statistics for the general population. The other answer to that question would also be that the test that we are doing doesn't just test IgG, which will tell you if you've had it in the past, but it will test for IgM as well, which will tell you if you have it, sort of you've had it in the last few days. And with that test, we're able to pick up asymptomatic carriers. So rather than going through a very intrusive test of the PCR test, which is absolutely the gold standard. And if you have symptoms, you should definitely go and do that. But um, for, for me, I never had symptoms of COVID. If I'd been able to do a, a quick fingerprint test, I would have likely picked up my IgM much earlier, which would have stopped me spreading it around people while I was asymptomatic. Biograd says it's offering the antibody testing at Digcot Town on August 11th at a cost price of just over £30. Now, the government released a new review of free school meals last week, suggesting that a further one and a half million children should be offered them. The National Food Strategy warned that poorer kids were being left behind because of the pandemic. Susan Jebb is a professor of diet and population health at Oxford Uni and was involved in the report. She told me more about what they're recommending. We know that far too many people in Britain are eating diets which contain too much fat, too much sugar and too much salt. And so what this report does is to build on the recommendations of the obesity uh, uh, policies which were announced earlier this week to encourage a ban on advertising of um, unhealthy foods, restrictions on promotions in stores. And that will help all of us to um, eat more healthily because we won't be tempted quite so often to have these unhealthy foods. But what we've tried to do in the National Food Strategy is to go one step further. We know that families who are living in poverty really struggle. They have particular uh, challenges in providing healthy, nutritious food for their families. And so what we want to do here is to provide some targeted support. 
Now, we know that uh, school meals really boost a child's nutritional intake. So what we're suggesting is that we expand the provision of free school meals so that more children can benefit. We also want to see the holiday food and activity scheme, which has been supported during the pandemic, continued into the future. You know, the virus, even when we've got the virus under control, we're all, I think, very aware that the economic problems are going to last much longer. And so we're sure that families are going to need ongoing help. And those families that you mentioned that are struggling at the moment, especially heading into the school holidays, what extra challenges do you think the coronavirus has brought about for them in terms of affording decent, healthy food and looking after their health? Well, people were struggling. Some families were struggling before the pandemic. Others now find themselves um, out of work completely or having had their hours cut. Um, so the, the problems that the virus has brought economically are going to make life just increasingly difficult for some sectors of our society. This, is, this pandemic has really exacerbated the inequalities which already existed. There's lots of, like you say, lots of different measures by the government at the moment to try and get us eating a bit healthier. But at the same time, we've obviously also got this new Eat Out to Help Out scheme that's running in August. And I wondered if you thought they were slightly contradictory. One is obviously trying to help the economy get back on track, but it's also encouraging us potentially to eat naughty food. Well, the Eating Out scheme is very, very short. It applies to just a few days in August and is designed to sort of kickstart the businesses, uh, some businesses which have struggled during the pandemic. What we're talking about in the national food strategy and in the obesity policy is a really long-term plan. This is not a situation which is going to be turned around overnight. We need to be in this for the long haul. Of course, when people are eating out, we're expecting that to replace a meal that they'd have had at home, and I hope they'll make the healthy choices. As we begin to see calorie label introduced on more menus, it will be easier for people to make healthy choices even when they're eating out. Sticking with Oxford Uni just for a moment and according to a different professor who is an expert in disease control, if we want to have a relatively normal Christmas, a push for elimination of the coronavirus gives us the best chance. Now, I caught up with David Hunter after he wrote an article for The Guardian where he said that wiping out the virus is achievable and this is how. I think avoiding overseas non-essential travel uh, is really part of the way that we can try and drive the virus prevalence down even lower. And that's going to be important because if we go into the winter with the virus still circulating at about the same amount as it is today, then the chances of a second wave are much higher. And in terms of internal travel, um, you know, it's a nice sunny day today. I think uh, taking vacations in the UK does make a lot of sense, and that keeps the money uh, supporting our local economy. Uh, In terms of traveling up and down the country, unfortunately, there are areas, as we've discovered last night, that are being locked down. So it's a little difficult to know exactly where you can go. But if you look at the information on the websites, you can see where uh, the concerns are, where the concerns are likely to emerge in the next week or two. And traveling to areas outside those specific areas is probably a good plan. That's it, isn't it? I think with the local lockdowns last night, people are a bit nervous just to book anywhere at the moment, you know, for risk of losing some money. But obviously, if we do stop travelling overseas this year, there needs to be some backup, doesn't there, to kind of help the airlines especially that are going to lose out? Uh, So the airlines, I think, uh, you know, that's up to the government to support those jobs and make sure the airlines can maintain their equipment. 
Um, my understanding is that we Brits spend more money in Europe every year than Europeans spend in the UK. So keeping that money in the UK, uh, I'm not an economist, but it seems to me that it makes sense that this might be the one year we're supporting our local tourist industry uh, makes a lot of sense and, and helps preserve jobs in the UK. And how about air bridges? What are your thoughts on those? Should we be having any? So the air bridges are what got us into this trouble, the idea that you can predict weeks and months ahead of time where the uh, virus is going to be in countries that people want to travel to. And it, it turns out you can't. Uh, one of the characteristics about coronavirus is that it can escalate very, very rapidly. That's what happened in Spain, and so that's why the advice was changed for Spain. And, and for all we know, that could happen in any country you go to. So uh, at a minimum, people need to be aware if they're planning or booking overseas trips, they really need to look into the cancellation and other policies very carefully, look at what their travel insurance supports. Um, but again, I would advocate this is the one year in 100 years that uh, taking a vacation at home might be uh, uh, in everybody's interest. And David, what are your thoughts on if the government doesn't change its stance and its advice on all of this, how do you think we will look in Britain in terms of the virus and the spread by autumn, winter? Well, we do have to acknowledge that most of the spreading events that are happening are happening in the UK. It's not as if it's flooding in from overseas. That's just an extra worry. And if we had got the virus prevalence lower, um, we'd be in much better shape. Uh, so it's really a combination of things that uh, we know now that one of the major ways that the virus spreads is when people are in uh, crowded indoor environments. So absolutely avoiding those is key. Unfortunately, that includes things like churches as well as pubs, etc. Um, outdoor social distancing is probably a lot safer. Uh, wearing masks obviously is a key part of the package and the communications about that have been very confused, but that's important. Um, washing hands, social distancing, um, avoiding indoor environments. Unfortunately, that includes things like trains and buses, which is the way that people get to a lot of uh, the places they want to go. That, that's all an important part of the package to drive this lower. And if we don't have it lower uh, by the mid to late autumn, we do have a much higher chance of a substantial second wave. Now, concerns have been raised locally about how smooth the transition is going to be for children returning to school after lockdown and the summer holidays. Oxfordshire Community Foundation helps disadvantaged children up to the age of five be school ready and has been hosting online sessions since March to continue supporting families during lockdown. Susie Donalds, the Education Project Manager, told our reporter Emma Kerwin that the pandemic has highlighted the need to focus on preventative measures to try and stop kids falling behind. Through building the relationships with them and, and families, you know, have needed some of the same types of support and some types of support that are that are quite different. And uh, lots of telephone contact with families. We've been sending out weekly newsletters with different activities that people can do with their children at home because having inspiration <laughs> when your children might have previously going, been going to a childminder or a, or a nursery. Having inspiration to entertain them at home is really hard, um, let alone the sort of the time, the space, the computer access, and, and all of those things. Um, 
And uh, we have also linked up with a variety of partner agencies um, to deliver other things that people might have needed, particularly at this time. So we've delivered some families nappies um, or, or, or through our partners we have, um, or food parcels, or in some cases, hot meals. You know, it's a really, we, we have families that are trying to work and manage their childcare at the same time. Um, and just, just having the odd evening where they don't have to cook dinner as well as fit work and um, parenting in is um, is a relief sometimes. So we're we're trying to sort of broaden our the support options that are available to people and just be really responsive um, to what people need at the moment. And it is hard. It's a really difficult time. Difficult time for everyone. Difficult time for families and parents. Um, and and the more things that are going on for individual families, the more they have to juggle. Um, and and right now that's that was quite a lot for some families. Our project is about school readiness and it's about home learning and it's all of those things. But but underneath all of that, the, the most important thing to have a sound basis for sort of going on and, and developing and learning and things like that. Um, and, and we're talking about an age group of children that really, you know, that there is they won't understand the environment that this is that is surrounding them. But they will understand if their parents are feeling quite stressed, if their parents are having to worry about all sorts of other things like, you know, whether they can go out and go to the shops and get dinner or um, whether they've got cover, whether they're able to do their work, whether they're going to have work at the end of the day. Um, and, and, you know, children, children are aware of those stresses and strains and are affected by them. That was Susie Donalds from the local charity Oxfordshire Community Foundation. Uh, also in the news recently, we heard about a scheme to get more of us on our bikes, push bikes that is, with a pledge to offer them on prescription from GPs. Alison Hill, the chair of Cyclox, which champions cycling in Oxford, has welcomed the measures, which also include offering a £50 voucher towards making old bikes roadworthy. Well, I think that's brilliant because there's so many bikes in people's garages and sheds sitting there unused. And if this is a chance to get them out and uh, repaired, it is really excellent. There's a website that people can uh, sign on to to get their bikes, um, uh, well, to find out who will... um, be able to mend their bikes and this links in very well with the scheme I don't know if you've been aware of or the listeners have been aware of called the bikes for key workers scheme because through that scheme we've been asking people to donate bikes and we've had an overwhelming response so there are a lot of bikes out there ready to be um, upgraded and refurbished and used and as you know already um, there there are hardly any um, new bikes in the bike shops all around Oxford because there's been such a demand for people buying bikes during COVID. What about the idea of GPs being able to actually prescribe cycling to help us lose a bit of weight and prevent us from actually getting really poorly from coronavirus? Well, as you know, physical activity, cycling and walking are really important for health and in fact they're the miracle cure they 
they really help reduce disease and um, are an essential uh, for people who have diabetes and obesity to keep their fitness up and also reduce some of the problems associated with diabetes and obesity. So really very much to be welcomed. And um, we hope that it will make a big impact in, uh, in terms of people's health to be able to get back cycling and walking. On that note, there's a pop-up shop which has gone on display in Oxford, which is showcasing some inspiring plans for the city's streets post-coronavirus. Campaigners want to help shape proposals which will encourage more walking and cycling and social distancing. Oxfordshire County Council hasn't got long until it needs to submit a bid for £2.3 million from the government for funding for travel improvements. And Brenda from the Coalition for Healthy Streets and Active Travel told Emma some of their ideas. Congestion is not good for anybody, let alone the car drivers. And it's much better if you can walk around an attractive city and look at the, the wonderful townscape we've got. And it's much healthier for us. It's healthier because of the we, we breathe cleaner air. And it's healthier because we, as the government has announced today, it helps reduce our obesity if uh, we're that way inclined. Um, so it's good for everybody. What kind of things then will people be able to look at then in this pop-up shop? Well, for instance, in St Giles's, St Giles's is a hugely wide road, uh, most of which is given over to parking and to driving. We don't need that amount of uh, car focus. So if you remove the parking and you narrow the, the traffic lanes in the middle, you've got two wonderful wide walkways under those great plane trees on either side and you could make them into sort of cycle parks sorry sculpture parks uh, and uh, have cafes and places to sit and um, little little um, the, the, the council are already very good at putting out flowers so we will play, provide them with more spaces to do that and similarly in Broad Street we'd we'd make sure that uh, there's still enough access to the colleges or to the shops but in the centre, we'd remove the parking and again have a lovely paved area where people can sit and enjoy looking around at the at the various buildings that are so attractive. Many of these schemes that uh, we're proposing uh, make make the city much more attractive to be in. Uh, so, especially the views up places like St Giles and along Broad Street. But it's also uh, introducing low traffic neighbourhoods. Uh, there are several down in Florence Park. Temple Cowley, Church Cowley, uh, St Mary's Ward, which is the top of Ifley Road and, and Cowley Road. Lots of places are looking at uh, excluding cars, rat runs through their area. Also in the last week, Emma from News has been finding out the impact of the pandemic on the farming industry. She caught up with Alice, one of Oxfordshire County Council's animal health and welfare enforcement officers, who says protecting the food chain farm to fork is vital in a COVID-19 world. Originally, we did stop inspections while we got our risk assessments in place. But now we make sure that we're contacting farmers in advance. We're not, we're not going into premises, we're staying out in the open. You know, we're not touching anything unnecessarily. Extra disinfectants, washing our hands, etc., um, it's quite difficult because we also check records as well and I'm not sure how many farmers do have everything electronically so we do sort of have to check paperwork in person 
What kind of things have farmers brought to your attention then, either during the peak of the pandemic or now that lockdown's easing? Said farmers will still keep going. Um, it's quite interesting. We had quite a few calls at the start of the pandemic about, you know, whether TB testing was going ahead because people can't move cattle unless they're TB tested and they're clear. Um, you know, we have other things about moving animals around, selling animals farm to farm. Um, but other than that, the, everyone settles into a, a rhythm quite easily. How important is protecting the food chain in a new kind of COVID-19 world? Oh, massively important. I mean, protection of the food chain really can't be underestimated. That integrity of being able to trace your produce from the farm to when it's on your plate is just unbelievably important and I think we've had past issues such as foot and mouth and you know mad cow disease everyone is aware of it Um, and even now with the pandemic that's happening you wouldn't want a sort of outbreak of anything else on top of it so even now it was important before but it's (laughs) even more important now to continue that traceability so people actually know what they're consuming and they know it's happy and healthy and come from a good source. And so how do you actually go about protecting that food chain then? Is there stuff that we can do? Yeah, so what we do is everything's about sort of like being able to record one animal from when it was born on a premise to following its life all the way through until it sort of either produces, I don't know, dairy, eggs or meat. Um, and what we can do as people is we can ensure that we're sourcing our meat responsibly. So, you know, getting it where possible from local butchers or local farms, um, supermarkets when you're shopping, see if you can get um, accredited meats and dairies. So RSPCA accredited, Red Tractor, even better. But I understand it's not affordable for everyone is free range and organic produce. Um, so you know that integrity is there they don't get those labels just for the sake of it these farmers do work hard for them Um, and it's important now everywhere everyone's cooking so much with the pandemic happening they're all picking up new hobbies it's good to know that people want good quality food finally now we head over to the story museum in oxford and the great news that from thursday it is finally starting to open back up again just in time for the summer holidays and keeping the kids entertained It's had a £6 million transformation. It was supposed to have its grand reopening back in April, but of course that couldn't happen in the end. CEO Caroline Jones spoke to our reporter Alex Meakin. The grand opening we might have been planning in April has been put on hold because of all the COVID restrictions. So what we're doing is opening our ground floor only. So that's our small world space, which was for really small children, and our City of Stories short film about the uh, literary history of Oxford and our lovely cafe and our shop. And we've got this glorious external courtyard, which today, as I look down on it, is sun-filled. So we are doing time sessions, so a visitor must have advanced booked their tickets um, in small world is an hour and 15 minutes of absolutely gorgeous story-based play so our story guides who are our visitor service assistants are guiding each family around the space in quite a careful way Um, and in five different story zones children and their parents and older siblings can have fantastic fun exploring some familiar and some new story characters Um, in our city of stories film it's a 
25-minute short film in a very small, very fantastic interactive uh, film space, and it's exclusive to each family who books. So you'll be in there. It's got a capacity for 30 people, but in fact, you'll just be in there with your own family, um, so it's very safe. How stressful a time has it been uh, with everything that's been going on with with the reopening planned and then not back? And tell us, tell us what it's been like. It's been sad. I won't lie. I mean, I think you don't start a World First Story Museum without, in the first instance, being sort of quite a resilient bunch. Um, we're making something that seems at first impossible come true. So to that extent, we're pretty well equipped and every story has a twist in the plot, right? But um, that said... It was crushing. It was absolutely crushing to have worked so hard over such a long period of time um, in order for, at the very last minute, for our hopes to be dashed. Um, as an organisation, we had to change shape immediately. We've had lots, there's 40 of us in total. We had lots of people on furlough that we still have some people on furlough. Um, but a small, trusty, hardworking crew has been um, keeping going and trying to keep the organisation going and doing things like raising, raising emergency funding, um, just taking care of ourselves, just, just um, looking out for our staff and our hundreds of volunteers um, and then the minute we were awarded some emergency funding from the Arts Council um, that was announced earlier on this month we were able to take the first step towards getting our museum open so actually even though I describe our current opening as it's quite limited it's it's only I mean, it's one of three floors that we're opening here and um, it's only two galleries we have another four galleries, we have a hundred seat theatre, we have a Harry Potter themed learning studio, so there's so much more here for visitors to enjoy even though we're only making a small amount of it available, I have to tell you it feels fantastic to be finally welcoming families. Um, we did a rehearsal to make sure we knew what we were doing and, and we had a, um, a small number of families just coming and helping test out do the one-way arrows make sense? Do children take any notice of the advice at all? They're fairly random on occasion, they don't listen to instructions, so we just had to practice it and the really good news is it's fantastic and all the families have told us they've had a really fun time and actually for us that that's really important because what we've created here is a fantastic fun experience for children and families and what with all the new instructions and guidance it's not impossible to squeeze all the fun out of it and and we feel confident that what we've created is something that's still very joyful it feels relatively free even though you've got people telling you where to go and a little bit about what to do but we're just trying to strike that fine balance um to make sure everybody that comes across the door has a great time what will it mean to you guys to uh, be able to take a step away from the from the madness and the stress of what has been a very adult situation and enjoy the uh, the wonders of storytelling again? So much. I mean, look, stories are truly the anti-isolation device. They're things that bring us together, that reconnect. Um, today, as I say, we've had this little rehearsal and actually just to be sitting here in, in the office and hearing, I mean, it sounds incredibly twee, but I'm not kidding, children's laughter, to hear the sound of children running in an open space and enjoying themselves in a really fun interactive play space has meant an, an, an enormous amount to those of us that have been plugging away waiting for this moment. Um, and there's still so much more fun to come because towards the end of October we'll be, we hope, there's so many things out of our control here, but we're very much working towards opening the rest of our museum towards the end of October um, and as soon as we're allowed to open our theatre, our new 100 seat theatre for live performance, we will of course be doing that as well, so so much more fun to come That's all from me and the team this week, hope you're enjoying these virusy news updates and make sure you give us a follow on Twitter at News. have a great week everyone, enjoy those half price meals in the sunshine, I'm off out for my tea